This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. It is now time for Media Matters and my partner in crime as always is Marty Gibson. Good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm surrounded by a mountain of newspaper. And of course, big weekend announcement and announcement of recounts for Friday. You guys did a bit of a rundown on political panel on Monday. It's pretty much now starting to come together for Christopher Luxon. Yeah, well, it, it should be. Uh, and and I mean, the thing I guess I, I said on the political panel, it'll be interesting to see how much of a stumbling block some of Winston Peters' differences on some of those uh, organisations like the WHO and these various health treaties that you didn't hear a squeak from uh, Luxon about or the World Economic Forum. I've heard uh, National Party candidates say that they're opposed to those organisations impinging on New Zealand sovereignty, but yeah, my experience is that, that might not represent the overall party view. I think uh, Christopher Luxon is a is a corporate guy through and through. Mm. One of the things that I've gotten annoyed with the media is there's been so much concentration on them assuming that Winston is going to be the handbrake in these negotiations. And that's not my vibe at all. I actually think um, they should be casting their eye across to David Seymour, not to Winston. Well, I mean, Claire Trevitt said that. She's saying Labour's got to rebuild. However, as Labour goes about that, those who sat around the Cabinet table in the 2017 to the 2020 term, watching as New Zealand First applied its famous handbrake, will not have much envy for the National-led Cabinet. Completely misunderstands perhaps obtusely, the difference between National and Labour. I mean, Labour are all about making radical change. They're the only party that does. And National are about doing what Labour did more efficiently. To expect uh, New Zealand First roles in those two things are quite different. You know, I'd say that while they're a handbrake to Labour, they'd they're be more likely to be a catalyst or a, an accelerator. Mm. Trying to get National to be a little bit bold about doing things that are in New Zealand's interests. Mm. Is it getting national to do what it says on the box? Exactly. Well, speaking of doing what it says on the box, somebody who seems very, very concerned about that is Andrea Barnes this week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And she certainly seemed a bit unhinged almost. We were very dark this week. Very dark. Yeah, she, she was maybe more Darth Vance. So it's personal for journalists about Winston Peters. That's something that's really coming across is it's he's annoyed them, but it's also there's a touch of consternation because, you know, while they're all saying, oh, he wants, I saw there was this big to-do about Andrew Williams. Mike Hosking was in full Grandpa Simpson as a young man mode, basically interviewing his microphone, trying to throw first Christopher Luxon off balance, and Christopher Luxon was using all his corporate media training to just keep, keep repeating the the corporate mantra. But David Seymour wasn't quite as uh, as good at that, and his um, he couldn't help but you know throw more barbs, and even though it's absolutely not in his interest to do so, and he's going to pay for them. And, and I guess that's probably part of the game, isn't it? But yeah, Andrea Vance was was saying the world is a raging, belching bin fire. The last thing it needs is Winston Peters throwing a fag end on the flames and grabbing the torch of New Zealand's foreign policy. What did you take from that? Because I, I, I thought she had a fair bit back to front. 
yeah, well, she was implying that Peters was not an effective foreign minister, but everything that I've read in reports that I've seen up until that point was as he's exceptionally well respected when yeah. he's had his couple of, I think he's done the role twice. I think that was projection on her part. Yeah, she, and she, then she says, globally, populism appears to be on the wane with an emerging trend towards progressive centrism. Whose mind, <laughs> no, Andrea? Andrea? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the opposite, buddy. Look at Spain. Look at Austria. Look at Italy. Look at what's about to happen in America, despite all you media lovies just hating Trump. It's so funny. I highlighted that as well. She follows it up saying, but many of the world's complicated problems have laid at the door of populist leaders who seduce with answers that are simple and usually wrong. Yeah, which I think a lot is a of the conflict in the world at the moment at the feet of corrupt, pedophilic, dementia-afflicted octogenarian that 83% of Labour voting women approve of. Reactionary populism is now the biggest obstacle to tackling global warming. I would say the fact that it's not caused by anthropogenic CO2 is a major obstacle to tackle it the way you tackle it. The other thing too is there is a number of violent conflicts that is at the highest level since the end of World War II. Israel, Syria, Nagorno-Karabakh, I don't know that where that one is, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, Niger, and five other coups in the Francophile West Africa, Myanmar, and of course Russia and Ukraine. Now you take Russia and Ukraine out of that mix. I don't know about the Nagorno-Karabakh one, that one I'm not aware of, but the rest of them all have one thread in common. It has got nothing to do with populism and everything to do with ideology and religion. Mm. I was listening to a podcast, and the bad thing about listening to podcasts rather than reading books is that if I read a book, I know exactly where what I read was, so I can go back to it, but... Often I can't even remember the podcast where I heard something. And I was listening to a podcast that I think Jordan Peterson was having with um, possibly an Israeli politician. He was saying in the entire conflict, and obviously this needs updating after the terrible events of the last couple of months, um, but he was saying the the total um, deaths, Palestinian and uh, Israeli, in the whole conflict since whenever it started was about 130,000. And he said he was talking to some African politician who's in a country next to, I think, Sudan. And he said, oh, yeah, a bit of that spilled over and 400,000 people died. I'd never heard of it. Mm. It's always the difficulty about using the news to tell you who to feel more sorry for when they're tortured, raped and killed, is that there's awful things happening all over the world. Well, and this is the thing that I'm finding is that these awful things are happening all over the world, but when it does actually seep into the news cycle, that then says to me it's less about what is the atrocity that's going on in that place and more about the politics that's driving it, because mm. why else would it be there? Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know whether you wanted to get into Chloe Swarbrick. The mask's coming off those ladies, isn't it? Mm. They're just I've deliberately not said much about this latest conflict between Hamas and, and well, Palestinians broadly and, and Israel because I don't know enough about it. It's awful. Any political abstract thing, uh, point I might make just seems churlish and uh, distasteful in the face of the awful things that are happening. I, I'm with Donald Trump on that. I just want people to stop dying. Mm. The one pinch point for me is that if one side 
renounced violence, there'd be peace. And then maybe we could work through some of the injustices and unfairnesses. But if the other side renounced violence, there'd be genocide from the Jordan to the sea. Mm. And that's the side that Chloe Swarbrick's on. Loudly. I mean, you know, if she lived in Gaza, she'd end up getting towed uh, behind a motorbike until she was dead because they don't like lesbians over there, Chloe. Same with Projecto Gay Chihuahua, New Zealand's Ernesto Che Guevara. Oh, yeah, um, Ricardo. Yeah, he wouldn't last long there. And you can't ignore that. There is a policy of genocide, which isn't to say that, um, you know, it always does take two to tango, but uh, I'm not keen to be drawn on unpicking it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 what I'm more keen on is that New Zealand doesn't end up that way. And there are a fair number of people here who seem to be drawing a pretty firm parallel and saying which side they're on. And it's on the side that if the violence stopped, there'd be genocide. What I find exceptionally dangerous is how Marama Davidson and Debbie Nariwapeka are trying to draw a comparison between the Palestinians in Gaza and the colonisation of Māori in New Zealand. And I just do not think that that is useful for any party whatsoever. And watching Chloe's speech, the thing that really struck me was, is why are you even there, Chloe? You, mm. you don't have a dog in this fight, Chloe, so why are you even there? I would yeah. be more understanding if there was a Palestinian standing up there with righteous indignation and anger because it is personal for them yeah. than her. Why is she there? I, I don't get that. I think that she's she's there to score political points. She's there to press her own agenda, and she's doing it on the back of these poor people who are and only trying disgusting. to be there. Yeah, and it is disgusting. And meanwhile, Phil Twyford... He got up to try and be a little bit more centred about things Mm. and practically, literally got booed off the stage and whisked away. Yeah, it's it's that uh, sacred anger. I raised this point on the political panel on, uh, on Monday. If you have a cultural thing where if something doesn't go your way or you suffer some minor insult, you just out of all proportion to what actually happened. The idea is that you psychologically shock your opponent into not doing it. That's what the, the game the Māori Party, or to party Māori, are, are playing as well. Old slick Willie Jackson saying, oh, you know, the, the, I think if, if they go ahead, and disingenuously said treaty referendum. And so if you read through Facebook, so many Māori, so many of the tutua who aren't that well-educated and the Māori leaders don't seem to care, in fact, it suits them just fine that they're not educated, think it's about taking the Treaty of uh, Waitangi away. Mm. When it's not, it's about, hey, shall we have a talk about these principles of the treaty that dopey old Easter Island statue Geoffrey Palmer stuck in some legislation when he wanted to sell off? Oh, the state services legislation, exactly. Yeah, and said at the time, oh, you know, it's just window dressing. It's meaningless. And then, of course, you know, as we've said before, the old activist judges come in, give it meaning, and now we're stuck with it. And any, hey, can we have a talk about ah! sacred anger? Yeah. And, and hey, we, we've got to just face it down. We've got to face that haka. Maybe pick up the wero, you know, and say, okay, let's let's have a chat about it. Because, I mean, I'm all about, you know, if there has been injustice, let's talk about it. But let's talk about it as a country. Do we believe that Pākehā don't own any of this land, you know, who may benefit in some ways 
from it. But, you know, is there a blood libel on us? Is there intergenerational guilt? When Willie Jackson was interviewed on TV a while ago concerning the, the genocide on the Chatham Islands, the interviewer asked him whether or not he felt any responsibility for it. And he replied, look, I'm not responsible for the actions of my ancestors. You know, again, that's very, right, Willie. you're not very, very sensitive to any insult to him, very insensitive to what he says himself. That's narcissism, Willie. It's not good. The one thing with Chloe, and as I said, why was she even there? What I get angry about is she's up there, she gives this impassioned speech, and as you said, there was an unmasking. Where is that passion for, for the likes of Baby Roo? Where is that passion for the failing education statistics? If you are that concerned about poverty and identity yeah. in this country, where is the concern for the failing of our Māori and Pacifica children within the education system? Where is the anger and indignation in terms of our woeful suicide statistics, our woeful statistics around domestic violence? Where is even the indignation in keeping our rivers and our oceans pollution-free, Chloe? I'd even accept that from you more. Why are you trying to put a dog in this fight where you have no place to do it? And I, yeah, I I have to admit, I had to step away from the, the phone and put it down and give myself a wee rest. I was actually quite annoyed by that. I really was. And yet you've got people like Andrea Barnes, who believes that somebody like Winston Peters... And even to a lesser extent, Christopher Luxon, who both have parties, as you in New Zealand first, Peters has always been very upfront about the fact that he will look after what is important to New Zealand first. So as a foreign minister, his role is to go out there and look after the needs of this country first. And I, one of the things I quotes I found really interesting with this is MFAT staffers are said to be slavering at the prospect of Peter's reinstatement anticipating a healthy budget boost. During the past two terms, they were left largely to their own devices. During that period, New Zealand's status and relevance has gone backwards. We were excluded from AUKUS and signed a subpar EU trade deal. The ministry's exceptionalism is a problem. Its high opinion of itself is not shared by other diplomats. Now, the thing is, is that's top down. Who was the person that held that role for the large majority of that time? Nanaya Mahuta. What was the one thing that Nanaya Mahuta didn't like to do? Travel. Yeah, it was, it was always a, a bit tough seeing her on the world stage as well. But See, this is the thing, is that whilst she carries a lot of mana within her own community within Tainui, and I'm sure she does, that mana does not necessarily translate out into a world stage. And that is something that Winston Peters has. He has the mana and the ability to look at things within New Zealand as a New Zealander. I mean, he's a lawyer, he's smart, he's been around the traps for a long time. And ultimately, he knows the value of that position is ordered to position New Zealand in a way that we improve our relationships and our trade. And our relationships and our trade, that's what's going to keep food on the table. That's what's going to make our nation prosperous. It's not going to be whether or not we're signed up to a pandemic treaty or... Giving away our sovereignty hand yeah, over the other The other quote that was a face palmer for me was, Peters is also an economic nationalist who has developed conspiracy-level suspicion of international institutions. Now, here are we talking about the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization... The UN. The UN, the International Monetary Fund, probably... 
you don't need theories. You can read these organizations' websites and their press releases. And I guess you can watch how you can see some, as when Chris Hipkins was prime minister or Dern was prime minister, he comes up with some policy and you think, well, where the hell did that come from? And you can go to the World Economic Forum and there's something there that was a press release a month or so ago. So, you know, to characterize that as conspiracy theory, I guess if there's a conspiracy theory for me in this, it was the paucity of coverage of it by New Zealand's bought and paid for media who, who just never saw fit to comment on the dangers of giving our sovereignty away to organisations like the World Economic Forum who are subsidised or funded by pharmaceutical companies and act in their interests. Well, it's when you look at, you know, she's obviously worried about, and a lot of these journalists, as you say, what they're worried about is they're probably sitting there thinking, but why are we doing this? I mean, foreign affairs, we don't have to worry about that anymore. The UN have yeah. got their sustainable development goals. Isn't that what we're doing for our foreign affairs now? No. There's a Chinese word for her, uh, which is baijiao. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it it's a Chinese word for Westerners who, are, you know, I guess like Chloe Swarbrick, refugees welcome, importing people with a culture that says they should be destroyed the self-destructive impulse the West has had and the characterization of any thought that we should look after our own interests, put our own oxygen masks on first so we can help others, so to speak. Yeah, um, indeed. Anything like that is is characterized as a regression to the colonial colonist impulse. It's all just Marxism. Yeah, who's saying that uh, there's an emerging trend towards progressive centrism i mean progressivism is basically an all-encompassing phrase for this godless global marxist managed collapse of the west well i mean progressive centralism i'm sorry that's an oxymoron yeah. as far as i'm concerned well unless you are looking at it through a lens where the overton window has had such a seismic shift to the left that anything that is essentially to the, to the centre of the Green Party is considered centrist. So I spoke to Simon Anderson just before we started. Now, he was the chap who did a lot of the filming with the Posey. He did the Posey Parker rally in March, and he's now been doing a lot of filming and a lot of the protests. And I said to him, you know, I have a theory. <laughs> Stop it. I have a theory, Martin. You know, I looked at that speech with Chloe. I've seen how the Māori Party have conducted themselves, now emboldened by their overhang and their tremendous success within the Māori electorates. I am seeing a new left block forming, which is the Māori Party and the Green Party, and they may let the Labour Party play along, but depending on what happens and depending on whether or not Labour want to go back to their traditional union-based working class roots, there may not be a place for them in that, that new left bloc. Well, Willie Jackson actually alluded to this, and he's alluded to it several times. I mean, he said uh, as far back in March uh, this year, uh, there's not that much difference between the aspirations of the Māori Party and the, and the Labour Party Māori caucus. We take a slightly more subtle way of getting there, and they're just, you know, Mm. right at it. I and, think you know, a lot of that Māori caucus will jump. Well, I mean, the question is, if you took the most barking mad loony left of the Green Party, mixed it in with Te Party Māori, and then mixed it in with the Māori caucus, you've you've got mm. well, you've got 20% anyway, I would think. Well, yeah. well Calvin, Calvin, 
<laughs> I don't think we'll survive his recount. So, and he has said that he will resign. So unless Calvin goes back to teaching, he's going to need a job. And I wonder whether or not he will end up over on that side of the fence. You know, the one Māori voice in all of this, and I mentioned it to Karina a while ago, that has been exceptionally quiet, and I'm rather surprised at how quiet that they've been, has been Honi Harawera. Have you got any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I, I just wonder whether our Honi has been bought and paid for to keep very quiet. Oh, I've got a different theory to that. Oh, go on. Well, I think he took a reasonable amount of cash to get jabbing up there. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, right. That's exactly what I mean. We all know that anything that came with that, they were rather fond of NDAs. Yeah. And things that you can and can't say if you take that money. It's dirty money. I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned. Dirty money. The graft was incredible. And I hope that there's, you know... Again, I was so heartened to see Shane Jones on uh, election night when it appeared that uh, New Zealand First were in for, for the first time and it appeared that, you know, that was uh, going to happen when he was asked, you know, if they had a bottom line. And the first thing he said was, well, we want a full COVID inquiry. And I think that will that will reveal all sorts of things. And I think if there's a sticking point in the coalition talks, it will be that Luxon and Seymour a donkey deep in a lot of that stuff, and they don't really want that distraction. Mm-hmm. But as I've said, so many of the problems that we're facing uh, have their roots going down into lies. You can't build a nation on lies. No. And, no, and, and that includes, you know, lies about, you know, injustices that Māori suffered. I, I'm not racially picking a side on this. I, I'm I'm picking the truth. You know, we need to look at, where the roots of the transgender fetishes go into. They go into pedophile academics. The roots of, of this new co-governance and principles of the treaty thing, they have their roots in some bullshit, as I said earlier, that Jeffrey Palmer came up with to get his mates to buy state-owned enterprises at knockdown prices. Mm. The list goes on and on. If I mean, one of the things that I will be intrigued with Luxon is that he is a corporate animal. Now, if he is the sort of corporate animal, I think I mentioned this last week, that I hope that he is, that's where Peter's, I believe, for him will be totally invaluable. Because if you've got someone that delivers ideas that you know are not going to be palatable to a certain section of the country that have had control for such a long time and the media, you need somebody that's going to be able to handle the, the squawking. And Peters is the guy. I mean, the paper was full of it, how they were complaining about how Peter is, Peters was not wanting to engage with media over the current negotiations for coalition. Well, hello, people. He's never engaged with the media <laughs> over these facts. This is nothing new. And you know what? He doesn't care. He really, he just was like, talk to the I head. think beyond that, he po- positively relishes it and he's just watching what happens and he's keeping his power to dry and he's thinking... Well, you know, it's going to be interesting for when I'm broadcasting minister. I likened, uh, we had a conversation earlier, and I likened the media to zoo animals that are used to being fed at 4 p.m. every day, and suddenly the feedings have stopped, and um, they're walking around in circles wondering what to do, and they're sort of neurotically interviewing their keyboards or microphones and just coming up with wilder and wilder 
hypotheticals rather than a, an actual analysis of the state of the country. Now they're free of the iron grip of having to say certain things to keep the uh, cash tap on. Well, they um, were so deep into the echo chamber, I really don't believe they saw this coming. Well, it's the Wellington Central block that voted Greens and should have to live under Green rule. Oh, well, they've they got Green here. They should have to pay the wealth tax. Yeah, yeah uh, I thought that was a great idea. Fran O'Sullivan um, said of uh, Christopher Luxon, the senior directors at Air New Zealand recognised him as a strong strategic scenario builder and planner when it came to confirming his appointment as chief executive 11 years ago. But what set him above the competition was his immense self-belief and his ability to execute and their confidence he would meet targets. None of that really speaks to a deep, soulful conviction vision, does it? And that's what's missing from him. Mm. I, I never really hear a vision from him. I hear cracking down on gangs, getting back on track. I hear, you know, what she's talking about. I, you know, I feel mean being mean to Christopher Luxon sometimes. Well, no, I, I'm I, sure I, he's a nice guy, but well, he's I, David Brent. Well, <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm thinking he's exceptionally vanilla. And then you oh, you, th- yeah. you throw in, you know, the, the little bit of chocolate with Winston. He's, you know, will spice things up a little bit. And Seymour, well, you know. Well, the status quo isn't good enough. Like we, we really do need to radically change how we're thinking. We need to integrate the various peoples of New Zealand so we can become more than the sum of our parts. That's a phrase I, I've used a bit in various settings, but it, I, I believe it so strongly. If you see Māori and Pākehā working together, we're so good. And like, you can read books about uh, Māori battalions. I've got Monty Suter's um, Excellent books on that and the First World War one. And also playing rugby. You get Māori and Pākehā on the same team with a clear vision, man, we're unbeatable. Mm. And mm. so it breaks my heart to see all this division and all this, you know, herding Māori in one area, keeping them poorly educated, keeping the handout for guilt, grievance, money, and just building all this resentment into poorly educated young people and, you know, valuing that they all think the same. It's not anti-Māori to find that repugnant. It's pro-Māori. Yeah. We talked about unconstrained and constrained visions last week. And so if you want a real-world example of those, the unconstrained vision was certainly the Chloe Swalbrick speech in the domain. If you want an example of the constrained vision this week, I believe that was with Stephen Joyce in the Saturday Herald. A job for a new government, the regulatory rollback, action is needed and fast to create momentum and cut spending. You had a really, really interesting thought on this before we got started. And that was, he was putting it out there that he wants skin in the game. That he's a girl dropping hints that she wants to be asked out but won't make the first move. Well, it was. He's he actually did say it. I think quite openly. He says here, Willis needs a hand-picked team backed by Treasury to go all around unearthing these savings opportunities as quickly as possible. Thereby building her savings war chest and can be reapplied to other initiatives, to tax relief, and probably the next year's budget. I mean, if that doesn't say pick me, pick me. I don't know what does. Well, it doesn't say pick me, but I hope that they do pick him, man. If I were in that government, because they're they're pretty light on experience, having been so badly clean out at the last election so you know that's that's the other thing about having to include some act and um and new zealand first mps in the cabinet is that a lot of them have got more experience than the national ones but 
man, Stephen Joyce is a guy, and you probably wouldn't even have to pay him that much. I was saying, you know, when you're reading this article and it details, the government could have paid $100,000 for this report. It's that concise and grasps the most important points so well. Yeah, and also too, he talks about the things that they have in common. See, these are things that can hit, you can yeah. hit, literally hit the ground running with because they are commonalities across all three parties. Job one is the regulatory rollback. These are the economy-stifling laws passed by the previous government that take the wrong direction and which National and its associates have collectively pledged to remove from the statute books. Things such as rolling back the RMA reforms, the Three Waters legislation, fair pay agreements and the oil and gas ban. Some sort of omnibus regulatory rollback law to be passed before Christmas with the support of all coalition partners would make sense, followed by a second one in the first half of next year with more difficult jobs. Priority should be given to changing laws that stifle investment and growth. There's a sort of real baked-in fear of business people that comes from, in no small part, I think, not knowing what a struggle it is. Yeah, I think I think there's that vision of, and you saw that in John Campbell's just terrible, oh, yeah. Well, it benefits property owners, but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this zero-sum game thing of, well, what's good for business people is going to be bad for the poor. I talked a bit on uh, Monday's show about the Luciferian habit of inverting things. So rather than build a strong economy and then have wages rise, the last Labour government jacked wages up and unsurprisingly the, the economy's fizzled. They um, put politics upstream of culture instead of the other way around. And unsurprisingly, it turned into an overly repressive society, shall we say. Mm. Well, we've been living in the fable, that fable of the ants and the cricket. The Our public sector, primarily our public sector, have been the crickets. They've been out there, they've been living high on the hog, the sun's been shining on them. You know, if they've only been, those business people would understand. They've had everything their own way and those ants keep getting in the way and they keep, you know, crossing their paths all the time and they keep filling things up and they're no fun and they're not spreading glitter and rainbows everywhere and they just they just keep getting onto their work and marching on what they're doing and grouping together and, and conserving and just being awfully dull. And now that the economic winter has arrived and we're yeah. having a change in leadership that will presage this potential economic winter and hopefully try and stave it off, all of a sudden there's a lot of crickets out there that are going, that are going to get very, very cold and they've got nothing. They've got no fat to come and go on because they haven't conserved anything. Yeah, well, especially if you think what someone doing an equivalent task to what a lot of public servants do in the private sector could expect to get paid. I've written a bit about the the East versus West uh, in terms of medicine and government. Wrote a, a column about that, and it's a it's a theory of mine that I'm I'm always fleshing out a little bit. But I think uh, you, in terms of the country, I'm, I'm interested to see that they're talking about regionalism. And Steve Joyce touches on this. Couple that with the government deciding on its approach to regionalism. The previous government's control freakery saw Wellington take even more control of big areas of life as diverse as health, education, water services, with the predictable result of even bigger bureaucracies and more poorly performing frontline services. With a swag of new regional MPs and New Zealand First as a partner, the government will be predisposed to trust regional leadership more. Its regional deals idea has real merit. The trick will be applying that regionalization actively across a range of policy areas. 
with the express purpose of shifting decision-making closer to the front line. Mm. And that's so important because it allows you to customise what you're doing. You just have to look at things like tipukenga. I mean, we talk about tefata order all the time because that's something mm. that you and I both have in one way, form, or another, have skin in the game over. But tipukenga, which is the the polytech merger, that was a shit show. Six ways to Sunday, and that's where that regional knowledge is really important because those institutions are vital at getting communities, regional communities educated and out of that poverty cycle that they're in. And in this region, the um, it was EIT, but there was the Tidafiti Polytech in Gisborne, which is a, was an incredible uh, facility up there. It got merged with what was the Eastern Institute of Technology here. And they do really practical stuff. They do training in forestry, training in trades, training, um, heavy licensing. Mm. I actually worked for, worked, worked for EIT. I did the media for a bit. They weren't as integrated into the community as they should have been then. So, you know, the, the, so the, centralising it even more into Puking, it would have been even worse. You know, we, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, I'd sort of said at one point, look, we should have the guy who's teaching, taking the engineering pre-apprenticeship class, go around every fifth form maths class and say, hey, look, you know, I know you're starting to get to the stage where you're starting to learn things like trigonometry and algebra, and maybe it seems a bit abstract, and you're thinking, well, where am I going to use it? But, you know, if you please stick with it because it's useful in this, and this means that after a four-year apprenticeship, you can earn the whole time, and you can come out, and you can have $60,000 and a, and a company vehicle, and you can be traveling the world you can go anywhere and be doing something useful. So it's really important that you keep your maths going. I said, if you do that year on year, you'll start to get ahead of... Well, they used cancer. to do that. They yeah, used but to apparently schools didn't want... that. Schools measured their success on how many of the students went to university. And so oh. they'd sort of blocked it. So, yeah, you really need to get in and start cracking some heads within these little fiefdoms that form in small towns, and God knows... Yeah, there are a lot of those the, in Gisborne. I know the exception to that is Lytton High School in Gisborne, which I think is your old. Um, yeah. And they had a program there because it's very high Māori enrolment there. And my cousin worked for EIT and she uh, was with the hairdressing program. So she mm. was actually helping students transition from. Yeah, there uh, are some really good transitioning really, programs. Yeah. And, and, you know, like. But as not I said, enough. I don't want to be unkind. I, mm. I did love the institution. The lecturers were great. You know, the students were fantastic. And that was a bit I really loved about that job because I got to see, I got to talk to so many different young kids. And I'd talk, I remember, I mean, just off the top of my head, yeah, just some of these Māori kids who were the first in their whānau to get a qualification and how proud everyone was and how it was informed by, you know, seeing their elderly 60-year-old grandparents still having to go and work out in the fields for near minimum wage. That moment that people get when they think, I want better for myself. And this is why, without wanting to go around in loops too much, I, I get so angry with leaders telling kids, hey, the system wants to see you fail. These people don't want to see you get ahead. I loved seeing them get ahead. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. And there's so much green fields that this new government could could get into that. And they really have to start calling out these leaders on their lackadaisical uh, uh, attitudes to poor academic performance as well. The poor entrainment of 
bits of culture like learning to read and reading to kids because it's not Māori. And the, the Weasley academics saying this, they can read. They got a good education. They were good in school. Maybe they got some, some crap about not being Māori enough and they wanted to come back to the marae. And so the best way to get back in the fold was say, oh, those Pākehās hate you. <laughs> you know, there's a bit of that. Mm. But as I said, more than the sum of our parts. No, indeed. I'm just going to do a little bit more on the Stephen Joyce because it is that good if you didn't get a chance to see it. First, uh, he then says task number two is getting started on fiscal repair. This too will be a long job, but the new finance minister will need to demonstrate early intent. Nicola Willis has indicated she will move quickly with the mini-budget before Christmas. Whether a full mini-budget is possible in the time now available will be resolved in the coming days, but there is a definite need for a round of sacred cow culling sacred cow culling in order to stop spending money on doom projects. First on the chopping block will obviously be the big and expensive of lemons, such as the Onslow Power Scheme, Auckland's Light Rail and the ironically named Let's Get Wellington Moving. But there are a number of things that need a big red cancelled stamp in order to start stemming the flow of taxpayer cash out the door. The new bureaucracies that achieve nothing in actual service delivery, for example, such as the Māori Health Authority and Tipukinga Head Office. There you go. Mm. The money's borrowed and spent in terms of the officers being there. Yeah, I know. Oh. It's just the wastage. And and I guess that's the difficulty too, because the only thing that Labour and the Greens can argue and push back against from the crossbenchers will be, you've just wasted hundreds of millions of dollars of what we had spent by yeah, rolling we, this stuff the, back. Their big call was, hey, what we were doing was just starting to work. Old Mike Monroe said that last week, didn't he? He did. Well, and Shane DePoe actually did that was he touched on that a little bit too. Um, did Shane. The opportunity for Labour is now to seize, he was saying. And he he was going on about again, you know, what they did so well, which was spend money. They didn't achieve yeah. anything, they just yeah. spent a lot of money. A long hundred billion dollars, Shane. I can do all sorts of things. I could give you PR stories for Africa. Yeah. He says here, parties of the left have to work much harder to show the public they can be responsible with the national finances. There's a reason for that, Shane. That explains why Labour and the Greens signed up to the budget responsibility rules in 2017. They needed to show that they were ready for government. While the public may not have entirely believed them, it did enough to quell public concern and that helped win the election. No, it didn't. Mm -hmm. Winston turned around and chose you as a coalition partner and not Bill English. But anyway, I digress. Alongside that prudence in 2017, the Labour Party also had a spending plan and families package that saw thousands of kids lifted out of poverty. It also delivered the first wellbeing budget and much needed investment started to flow into health and education. Again, nothing about outcomes. All yeah. flows in, no outcomes flow Terribly out. bourgeois concept, Marie. You were saying the big problem was the party never set out a vision of what a good economy looked like. It never brought the voters in on what they themselves should be getting, uh, on how the government was going to make life better and crucially easier for them. The reason for that, Shane, is because their vision was Klaus Schwab's vision. You know, if you look at James Shaw's first hand-wringing letter to the Climate Commission, it's stating that the two biggest threats to New Zealand climate projects or adventures or whatever were um, economic growth and population growth. Well, they got in and solved those two things, didn't they? 
you can't really sell the public on that vision. No, you know what we're going to do? We're going to reduce the live birth rate by uh, 27%. We're going to raise the disability levels to, by 38%. Going to get the excess deaths up 14%. How does that sound? Mm. Vote for me. Uh, the other thing, and this goes back to what I said earlier, Labor can look overseas for examples of this done well. U.S. President Joe Biden. I do always kind of think, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Because, I mean, you know, I'm an old white guy, and that old white guy gives me the creeps just for his oldness and whiteness. He's just ghastly. And just the incompetence, the 7 million people that are now in the States that they've just let flood over the border because they believe, I mean, Hillary Clinton said there should be no national borders in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that Simon mentioned in our interview was he has a concern now with the current crisis that is happening in the Middle East is leading into Armistice and Remembrance Day in the United Kingdom. He has a great concern because tensions are so high over there that it is a tinderbox and it will only take a very, very small spark to potentially set off a massive amount of unrest. Yeah, And again, bearing in mind that this is a religious conflict, okay? it's Yes, it is a humanitarian disaster, but at its core, this is a religious conflict that has been going on for thousands of years. So when you're dealing with that, and the left have spent a massive amount of time in the last, what, six, seven years to try and tampen down Islamophobia, there is still a radical nature within that religion. There just is. Now, I'm not trying to say... Well, it's a radical religion. Islamophobia, I mean, phobia is an irrational fear. I've read the Quran. I I, kind of get what they want to do. It's not irrational. So, Um, And if if you get a reformation of Christianity, it gets better. If you get reformation of Islam, you get get Hamas, you get Saudi Arabia. So the concern is if something sparks off in a Western center as opposed to the Middle East, and we even saw little sparks of that after the the incorrect reportage of the bombing of the hospital in Gaza, if something bigger sparked off with the number of illegal immigrants that have flowed across borders, whether they be in Europe or the United States, I think that there could be things that actually happen within those Western nations that could really, I mean, it will be an Arab spring like you've not seen anywhere before. I mean, you you take a less cynical view of it than me, Marie. Uh, I I think it's quite deliberate. You know, if you know about the Kalergi plan, it's to have a brown-skinned people of Europe Angela Merkel won the Kalergi Prize. She led a million military-aged males into her country. And if you look at European sex education videos, they show brown men coupling with white women. It's so, so brazen. It's incredible. So, I mean, women and children flee combat zones. Most of the people coming across the US border, most of the people coming into Europe are military-aged males. Mm. The, the idea that it's just happening accidentally and it isn't in the interests of the people who print the money. Send military-aged males with a chauvinistic religion that uh, tells them that they should conquer uh, the infidels who you've disarmed. To think it's uh, all accidental is, is childlike and it's naivety. Mm. 
Indeed. Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm getting down on on Muslims either. You know, my interactions with Muslims actually very similar to my interactions with with gang members, overwhelmingly positive. You know, I've met so many lovely uh, Muslim people that they're, they're great, uh, and I've met a lot of really interesting, pleasant gang members. But I've also had one or two terrifying experiences with both groups and I don't think either necessarily are a great idea. Mm. And that, again, there's light and dark and all human nature, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. We'll have to watch this space, but it does concern me. The one thing I got, I I got Monday's paper about the number of COVID vaccines wasted. Oh, actually, funny you should mention that. I do have that too. So this was in terms of not only the vaccines, I think it was also... Uh, PPE and the like is um... well just the vaccines. 1.7 million doses of Novavax, 1.4 million doses of the original Pfizer vaccine, 71,442 doses of its bivalent vaccine, 135,000 doses of the pediatric vaccine, and 6590 doses of the infant vaccine. Never heard of many uh, infants being badly affected by COVID, but. There we go. And because uh, Jamie Morton didn't do the sums, I did them. That's $116.3 million that we've just wiped our bums with. You throw the PPE onto that. Yeah, half a billion dollars of uh, rat tests, right? Uh, Yeah, no. So New Zealand is to dump $286.8 million worth of expired COVID-19 health supplies. It has emerged that the government is poised to dispose of over a quarter of a billion, that's billion with a B, worth of expired COVID-19 tests and personal protective equipment accumulated during... You know, we've just had a little thing with plastic bags... (laughs) Uh, stockpile included rapid antigen tests, masks and gowns amounting to 1.3 tonnes of now unusable equipment. Now, Chloe, why weren't you a bit passionate up on the stage talking about that, eh? Why weren't you talking about that? Isn't that in your wheelhouse, bet? Anyway, to far to order, the National Health Agency has been tasked with the disposal process with the value of the discarded items at $286.8 million. The figure was calculated based on the average cost of the standard pallet quantities, the gear destru- described as a pandemic insurance in case supply chain disruptions. Why would they throw away PPE? It doesn't expire. Why not just stick it in the warehouse? Maybe I should buy it. They've gone and contacted a external contractor to, to get rid of it. Maybe and I can it, get paid to have it. <laughs> well, the other side of it is that if it if it's such a concern because there's a date stamped on the outside of it and therefore your regulations within Tafatu Aura because you're all process-driven there and some jumped-up nurse that's been given a managerial job with a six-figure salary, but I'm not going to split that here right now, says that you can't use it because the date on the outside says that it's expired, fucking donate it to Israel and Gaza then. If you're that worried about yeah. it, I'm sure they could use gloves, gowns, well, and masks. <laughs> yeah, across there. I'm sure that they could use that. I just, ugh, wasteful spending. Anyway, do you want some hey, feedback? Uh, that always makes you feel better. All right. Okay. Uh, from Bronwyn. Hi, Marie. Caught up on your show over the weekend. I always listen to Media Matters, but this week was a whole new awesome. It was. We were good last week. We were both very happy with last week. I especially loved hearing from Neil again, uh, as your first interview with him just boggled my mind to hear what was going on in the knitting world. (laughs) The knitting world. You have no idea, my friend, of the twisted web that we weave in the knitting world. I'll have to get someone to make me a jersey. 
<laughs> uh, this is from Libby. Kia ora Marie. Just wanted to say how amazing your friend Marty is. Oh, so uh, so understated. But after nearly a year of listening to his quiet, respectful, non-ego contributions to RCR, he is definitely one of the best thoughtful humans we have in New Zealand. So well read, so beautiful. Please tell him how grateful I am for his insights. Oh, Cheers, oh, Libby. Not helping love. the non-ego, Libby. Not helping the non- <laughs> Thanks very much. I really appreciate that. Much love always, actually, on that one from Libby. So thank you, Libby. This one is from Aroha. I love the show. Tell Marty um, where he can find the Kate Hanna open letter with the archives and i think you got forwarded that link to that yep, didn't you thanks yep. for that. thank you for that this uh just this one from the text machine uh work gangs yes wood chips to a use recycling gag members to work off their sentences great idea this one is also saying another one saying prefer gangs to wear patches so i know i can give them a wide berth another from the text machine bruce cottrell is the best always look forward to his column so lots of really good positive feedback for us for last week. Oh, good. Well, I'm pleased that uh, people are enjoying uh, listening to it. We enjoy doing it. I we always do. look forward to, to doing it. No, we do enjoy doing it. And if you've got more feedback, remember you can send that to us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or the text number, of course, is 2057. We've covered a lot of ground but not covered a lot of ground today, but it has been very good as always. And yeah, next week is another week, Martin. Uh, well, well, thanks again, Marie, and uh, have a great week, everyone. Yeah, same to you. Don't disappear. Coming up, Woke News of the Week here on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Reality Check Radio.